At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I am really excited for this show, not only because it's going to be a great show and really interesting content, but because it is tied for the longest distance I've ever interviewed anyone. Well, probably not exactly tied. We'd have to look at the map and figure out exactly how far Australia versus New Zealand is from where I sit right now. But I'm excited to have with me Dr. Ali Bechtel. Ali, am I saying your last name right? Is it Bechtel? Yes. Yep. That's right. Great. And Allie uh, is the podcast host for the Anesthesia Safety Podcast, which is part of the Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation. And we're going to talk about the Anesthesia Patient Safety uh, Foundation today and what that is, what they do, and what really we all should be aware of because it's really important work. Allie used to be an attending at UVA, and now it lives and works in New Zealand as an attending anesthesiologist. And I'm really excited to have her on the show to talk about the Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation. So Allie, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. And part of the whole moving to New Zealand, it's changed. Um, I went from attending anesthesiologist to consultant anesthetist um, and say a lot of anesthetics instead of anesthesia, which has made it really fun and exciting. <laughs> right. So consultants are the attendings and are registrars the residents? Yes. No. Yes. Okay. Uh, Regis. Um, yeah. Regis. Okay. All right. Well, it's 16 hours time difference where you are. So we're really bridging, uh, bridging the world here. And it's always really exciting to get to do that. And I'm so glad we can make it work. So let's start with you. Just tell us a little bit about how you got interested and involved with the Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation. Maybe a few words about what it is and how you got involved in it. Sure. So I first got involved with the Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation in 2020 when they put out a call for a, a podcast host, it was the first time they were going to expand from their anesthesia patient safety newsletter um, to bring content through the world of podcasting. And I had been an avid anesthesia podcast listener and just all around podcast listener for a long time, including the ACRAC podcast, which all of the anesthetic residents at UVA know I used to tell them, oh, just make sure you go listen to this podcast. And then I worked with openanesthesia.org and did a keywords podcast for a little while too. And then I moved on and interviewed and applied for the APSF podcasting position and got to be part of that group and be welcomed into the APSF family. So the Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation, basically the whole mission is that no person shall be harmed by anesthesia care and um, we recently celebrated the 35th anniversary newsletter um, a couple of years ago, and basically the organization is just dedicated to improving anesthesia patient safety from a multidisciplinary perspective. Um, and I encourage anybody who is interested to listen to the Anesthesia Patient Safety Podcast, but also to check out APSF.org for tons of resources, and we're going to talk about some of those today, too. Fabulous. All right. So tell us... There are these 
things called the APSF patient safety priorities. So what are the patient safety priorities and how are they determined? So the anesthesia patient safety priorities are determined by a task force, which meets to review the priorities and propose new new priorities. And then we have an APSF board of directors and invited members who then vote on those priorities. Um, then the priorities are ranked and there's reports generated on what we think is the top priorities in anesthesia patient safety with, you know, minor changes every couple of years. And then occasionally we'll have to, we'll have too big a list. Like we might have 14 proposed priorities and then we want to reduce that list to 10. Once we get the results of that final survey and voting process, the final list of priorities is reported out to the board of directors meeting for final approval. Um, and the APSF board and team members are constantly brainstorming new initiatives and supporting activities to continue to move the needle for improving patient safety. And this has led to generating these lists of priorities that then help us to focus our time and resources and initiatives in these areas. Um, back in 2021, we had the introduction of the patient safety priorities advisory committees. And these committees now meet regularly in order to address each of the priorities within the finite resources that the foundation has available. And so it's really nice because with those uh, tasks or those advisory committees, they can bring their expertise and new perspectives outside of just our smaller APSF family. So it's really led to a big expansion of the APSF family um, that's helped us to meet um, some of our patient safety missions. Great. This is such important work. So why don't we go through the priorities and you can tell us a little bit about each one. We'll start with the culture of safety. Tell us what that means to the APSF. Sure. And actually, I'll start with the Joint Commission defines culture of safety as the collection of beliefs, values, attitudes, perceptions, competencies, and patterns of behavior that determine the organization's commitment to quality and patient safety. And um, one of the ideas behind a culture of safety and a marker for it is the willingness of employees, whether in the clinical or support roles, whether they're newly hired or they've been at the institution for a long time, to feel comfortable speaking up when they say, when they see something. And another important idea with culture of safety is having um, good relationships between all members of the team um, who are providing anesthesia and patient care too. So um, this could be between the surgeon and the anesthetist or between the nurses and the anesthesiologists and, and everyone in the team. Okay. So this really, I find, is an interesting one, especially the latter uh, part of what you said. The relationships between, obviously, one that we deal with every day is the anesthesiologist and the surgeon um, is a really interesting one. Tell me a little bit about that. What are some, uh, for example, negative stereotypes that each side has about the other? Yeah, so Jeff Cooper provided some of these examples in his 2020 APSF newsletter article that talks about healthy relationships between anesthesia professionals and surgeons are vital to patient safety. And some of the negative stereotypes of anesthesia professional stereotypes of surgeons might be they never admit how much blood they've lost. They just want to make a lot of money doing more and more cases. They don't know anything about patients' medical issues. And they always underestimate how long the case will be. And then on the flip side, some of the examples of the surgeon stereotypes of anesthesia professionals might be 
that they just want to go home early and they don't really care about the surgical patient. Uh, they're ready to cancel a case at the drop of a hat. They're often distracted or not paying attention. And they never tell us about what uh, vasopressors or inotropes they're using. Yeah, those ring so true. And, you know, I've thought about this a lot. I've talked to our surgical colleagues, you know, even things like asking a surgeon how much time is left in a case can be so fraught because of these stereotypes. And not all, of course, but some surgeons hear that and they think we're pressing them. We want to get out of there. We just want them to hurry. We're trying to make them feel bad about how long they're taking. When actually maybe what we're thinking is I just need to time my neuromuscular blockade. So I need to know how long is left. Um, and similarly, right, I think surgeons think if they ask us how many twitches does the patient have, that we're going to be offended and think they're saying we don't know how to manage neuromuscular blockade. And, you know, we're trying to skate by and let them be light and all this stuff. And, you know, probably most of the time, neither of those is true. But but they, these things build on themselves and they really interfere with good communication in the operating room. So I think all of those ring true. How do we help alleviate this? How do we uh, help try to strengthen the relationship and avoid these stereotypes? So <clears throat> some of the ideas might be just as simple as like individuals can read books about communications um, and communicating across relationships because relationships are hard and they're definitely hard in the high stakes environment of the operating room. And there's a lot to learn, but thankfully there's a lot of good models out there. Um, and then recently, I think there's been a big push for training together and simulation of the entire team. Um, this is a proven way to improve the team's crisis management skills. Plus, it allows surgeons and anesthesiologists to have a dialogue at an equal level during that team simulation. Um, and this might be an area where you could just say, hey, let's all get together and do the simulation, whether in the simulation center or do an in-situ one in your own operating theater to give it a try. Um, and then one really good suggestion from the article that Jeff Cooper had was just to assume the best intentions. And this one is pretty simple, but um, it just as in the basic assumption is that my surgical colleagues are intelligent, doing things in the best interests of their patients and trying to improve. And the hope is that surgeons are assuming the same thing about us, too. It might not always be so, but it mostly is. And that'll go a long way towards improving the relationship. Uh, another really good one would be working together on common issues, whether that's lowering the risk of surgical infections, implementing emergency manuals together, uh, working together during the timeout process at the beginning of the case. And then my favorite one is uh, take a surgeon out to lunch or dinner or vice versa. They could take you out. But that's such a good way to have a conversation that um, might bridge the medical and surgical realms. Yeah, I agree. It's so nice when you know, I think we all have been there, right? When you're in the operating room with a surgeon who you know, even better if you know them on a personal level, it's a much more comfortable. I mean, all those stereotypes are out the window. Um, you know, several of our surgeons here, I, my kids and their kids go to school together. So we see each other, you know, at school and socially, and it just makes for a much different interaction than someone who you maybe don't know that well, or don't see it work. So anyway, you can improve that relationship, make it more robust is great. Um, all right. So this is a really important priority, obviously. And I think it dovetails really well into the next one, which is teamwork. So talk a little bit about what teamwork is in terms of how the APSF sees it and how it how it's different from what we just talked about, which obviously had a lot to do with teamwork. Sure. Yeah, I agree. This teamwork is very closely related to culture of safety. Um, some of the 
kind of extensions of it is that this teamwork really involves around patient-related communication issues, handoffs of care, and transitions in care when the team really has to be um, working really well together. Um, there was a good example from the 1993 APSF article teamwork among all in the operator operating room seemed to be a key human factor in event response by Stephen Howard. Um, so he provides this very straightforward, simple example. And you, we've all seen examples of teamwork um, when it's not working well in the operating theater. But in this example, it was a 40 year old man undergoing an aortic valve replacement. And when the surgeon was incising the pericardium with the electrocautery device, the patient's heart fibrillated. So the abnormal rhythm was quickly diagnosed by the anesthesiologist who notified the surgeon who then called for the internal defibrillator paddles. The surgeon asked for the defibrillator to be set at 10 joules and then gave the command for the nurse to discharge the paddles. But the nurse did not understand the surgeon's command to, quote, shoot, and so did not discharge the paddles until the anesthesiologist instructed the nurse to, quote, hit it, which was the command that was usually used in that operating room for the nurse to discharge the defibrillator. The resident working in the room at that time was not familiar with the language of this operating room and the members of the team were not communicating optimally during the crisis. But ultimately, once the nurse understood the command, the patient was successfully defibrillated and the rest of the case proceeded uneventfully. Um, but I think it's just a good example of how even very small changes in the language and how that team interacts and works together in the operating room can have an impact on patient safety. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, there are also so many examples of communication gone awry, teamwork gone awry, where someone doesn't feel comfortable speaking up, right? We've we've heard these stories. Um, a nurse or in aviation, we hear these too, right? The co-pilot who didn't feel comfortable saying anything to the pilot in the plane crash. So the, the importance of, of both having a similar language, uh, knowing how to use it, being comfortable using it, all rings very true. Um, what about... Um, I think you mentioned that there's another case uh, that involved a tension pneumothorax in the operating room. Tell me about that. Yeah, this was actually a much more recent article from the APSF, um, which was about a tension pneumothorax in the operating room when teamwork and communication saved lives. Um, and this was a 60-year-old woman with active smoking history, hypertension, AIDS, and hepatitis C, who presented with a recurrent pneumonia with a loculated exudative pleural effusion. She underwent a thoracentesis, pleural biopsy, chemical pleurodesis, and decortication via a left thoracoscopy. This was complicated by parenchymal bleeding, which required a conversion to a thoracotomy. When she was mechanically ventilated during repositioning from lateral to supine, there were sudden difficulties in ventilation and oxygenation was noted to decline. There was high peak airway pressures, hypoxemia, tachycardia, and persistent hypotension. The physical exam revealed an expanding subcutaneous emphysema with loss of left-sided lung sounds. And then in addition to hemodynamic management, a survey of all the equipments, all the team members were kind of looking around the operating room, and they found that the suction had been disconnected from the chest tube apparatus. Suction was then applied to the chest tube with removal of an occlusive thrombi with flushing, resulting in rapid improvement in hemodynamics and respiratory um, improvements as well. And then an intraoperative chest x-ray was done to confirm proper chest tube positioning and revealed resolution of the um, of the pneumothorax. Yeah. So tell us a little bit, like, what, what do you highlight in there? What do you think the real key teamwork uh, pieces of that were? 
So I think it, this is a case where the anesthesia team was probably very busy managing hemodynamics and respirations and going through kind of their checklist of what could be causing these changes. The surgeons are, are working on helping to manage, you know, the surgical changes that had gone from a, a thoracoscopy to an open thoracotomy position. And so it really relied on, we thought the section tube was hooked up with section applied, but then someone else in, on the team had to say, oh, wait a second, is the chest tube working the way that we thought that it was working? And then recognize that actually there's a disconnect at this level. And it's not something happening in the patient or with the surgery, but actually outside that realm and being comfortable enough to speak up to say, hey, I think, you know, we need to reconnect the suction tubing. Right. And you could imagine a situation where maybe the anesthesia team loses their suction. They kind of do their whole scan and everything looks like it's hooked up appropriately. And maybe they can't see behind the machine where that's where it's come disconnected on the wall. But the nurse maybe can see that if the nurse is involved in the trying to troubleshoot. But it's too often, we could imagine the anesthesia team doesn't say anything because they think they're going to troubleshoot it on their own. Or maybe they try to say something, but everyone else is too busy to listen. And so everyone working together to solve a problem can be so effective. Yeah, I totally agree. And it um, that's one of the other really exciting projects that the APSF has with um, under this banner of teamwork is their perioperative multi-center handoff collaborative. Um, they have a really easy to remember website for this, handoffs.org. Um, but this was basically, uh, designed to help kind of meet this need of improved teamwork and then specifically at the handoff and communication issues. Um, and it's great. I encourage everyone to go check, check out this website because there's really great free available tools and resources to improve handoffs from just general handoff tools and then resources that you can start using right away from maybe going from the ICU to the operating room, certain different interoperative resources, and then going from the operating room to back to the ICU and then OR to PACU resources as well. Right. And these are so important. You know, I think we all think we do such a good job with handoffs, but we don't. <laughs> so having some tools, some good checklists can really make a big difference. Um, are great. Let's move on to clinical deterioration. What does that priority entail? So this involves a lot, as you can tell from the name, but it is preventing, detecting, and determining pathogenesis and mitigating clinical deterioration in the perioperative period. And this includes early warning systems in place for all perioperative patients, monitoring for patient deterioration, which might be postoperative continuous monitoring on the hospital wards, opioid-induced ventilatory impairment and monitoring, as well as monitoring for early sepsis, and then early recognition and response to the decompensating patient. So does the APSF advocate for continuous monitoring for all patients post-op? That is not something that is standard of care at the moment, but is that something the APSF thinks should be standard of care? So there have been a lot of articles on this in the past, and in particular, when we look at opioid-induced ventilatory impairment, um, and with unlimited resources and availability, continuous post-operative monitoring on the wards in post-operative patients receiving opioids would be um, would be great. And but we all recognize that there are limitations in resources as well as limitations in the types of monitors that are available and may be used as well. And so, um, some of the highlights from like in this realm have been, you know, discussions about 
rapid response systems, early warning systems, and surveillance monitoring. But ultimately, there's definitely more research is needed in this area and, um, and being able to kind of continue to tackle this problem. In 2019, the APSF Stolting Conference was dedicated to this topic. So this is an annual conference that the APSF does where they convene stakeholders, um, which includes people in anesthesia, surgery, intensive care, hospitals, practices, uh, perioperative and intensive nursing care, pharmacy, respiratory care, industry, regulatory agencies, and other patient safety organizations all to get together to tackle a problem. And in 2019, um, it was dedicated to clinical deterioration. And they recognized that, you know, a major factor contributing to postoperative mortality and morbidity was certain failures. And this was failures to recognize when patients begin to develop a perioperative problem, failure to rapidly intervene once the problem's been diagnosed and recognized, and failure to rescue once that intervention's been started. And, you know, since that time and looking through the literature, there's been various models for early recognition that have been tested and implemented, but success for each of these models seems to be limited to very like single healthcare organizations. And so more research is just needed before we can have like um, overarching guidelines. Okay. Well, certainly really important stuff. And obviously if we could be able to identify patients early who may deteriorate later, then we can focus on them and try to prevent that deterioration. So that early warning is really, really key. And then a rapid response, as you say, to be able to treat those patients when when it happens, or if we didn't find out early, then certainly to respond when it does happen. And all of this comes back to that monitoring. And, you know, in a perfect world, everybody would have continuous monitoring. But as you say, that may not be feasible, but trying to at least find the patients who would benefit the most from it can be really important. So I think that's a, a really um, very applicable priority. Let's talk about non-operating room anesthesia, or as it's commonly known, NORA, N-O-R-A. Um, what does this priority entail? So this one entails safety in non-operating room locations, such as endoscopy, cardiac catheterization, and interventional radiology suites. And then there's some additional considerations for office-based anesthesia as well. This has been a big topic for the APSF recently because the 2021 APSF Stolting Conference was dedicated to non-operating room anesthesia. Um, We have a podcast series that covers some of the considerations from that conference, too. Um, but in non-operating room anesthesia, so this is becoming an increasing share of modern anesthesia practice. So something so many of us are doing for much more time than we were ever doing in the past, spending time in these non-operating room sites. And it presents setting specific challenges to providing safe anesthesia care. But what we do know is that having protocols and interdisciplinary teamwork can help to make these areas safe, efficient, and cost-effective. Great. And actually, let me ask, Allie, you mentioned that there's a podcast series on this. I'm sure your podcast has all kinds of really interesting material that will go further in depth on what we talk about. So where can people find the Anesthesia Patient Safety Podcast? So if they, you can find it on iTunes or wherever you, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts normally as the Anesthesia Patient Safety Podcast. Or if you head over to APSF.org and click on the Patient Safety Resources heading, uh, second one down is the Anesthesia Patient Safety Podcast, and you can find our entire archive of all of our podcasts. And for those of you on YouTube, we do have an APSF YouTube channel, and all of our podcasts are available on there as well. Fabulous. All right. So 
Getting back to Nora, the, the Nora priority, um, share, share with us a case study that kind of illustrates some of what we're talking about here. Sure. So um, this is the case of a 64-year-old gentleman who presented for an elective colonoscopy. He had a past medical history of morbid obesity, hypertension, diabetes, and obstructive sleep apnea. The anesthesia plan was for IV sedation with an unsecured airway, and oxygen was given via nasal cannula at four liters per minute. So about 15 minutes into the procedure, the gastroenterologist noted that the patient was hypotensive and had an arrhythmia, which then developed into bradycardia. When the lights were turned back on, the patient appeared to be cyanotic. The oxygen saturations were 75% and the heart rate was 49. The anesthesia professional applied a face mask and increased the oxygen flow to eight liters per minute. The patient's condition continued to decline though and he went into asystole. A code was called and the anesthesia professional then secured the patient's airway. After several rounds of CPR, there was return of spontaneous circulation and the patient went to the ICU for a hypothermia protocol. But ultimately a subsequent CT scan reviewed revealed diffuse brain swelling. The patient never regained consciousness and the family elected to withdraw supportive measures and the patient passed away on post-operative day seven. So following this case, um, uh, the patient's wife and adult children filed a lawsuit against the anesthesia professionals in his practice group. And the family alleged the anesthesia professional departed from the standard of care in several ways um, that included over-sedating the patient failing to secure the airway in light of the patient's high risk for obstruction, failing to utilize capnography to measure qualitative and tidal CO2, and failing to timely recognize and manage the patient's respiratory depression. Um, and so that was a very sad case, and there's just many ways that that patient could have been kept safe um, that were not done. Yeah. And, um, you know, so many things come to mind, right? First is we have to think hard about patients and whether they are good candidates for unsecured airway anesthesia. And not all patients are the same. It's very easy to get into the habit. I mean, I do endoscopy sometimes, right? And it's, you got 20 cases and they're all coming in to do them all the same way, right? Everybody gets a propofol infusion, a little bit of fentanyl and, you know, um, not no secured airway, but, Patients are different and we should think about them differently and make sure that we're prepared and certainly monitoring them closely. And, you know, it sounds like there were uh, a lot of complicating factors in this case, but um, we, we have to be, I, I always tell our residents, it's easy to think. And I think when I was a, a young resident, I remember thinking, well, general anesthesia is the most complicated because it's the most intense. And then, you know, MAC is the easiest because it's the lightest. And actually, MAC cases or certainly general anesthesia without a secured airway cases are by are way more complica complex, complicated, and difficult to manage than a general anesthetic with an endotracheal tube and a secured airway. Do you agree with that? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, folks. This is no joke. Last night, I'm sitting there eating dinner with my family. We're having Factor. And my daughter, my oldest daughter, looks up to me and she says, Daddy, how do they make this taste so good? It's like we're at a restaurant. Even my two younger daughters, who are incredibly picky eaters, are loving every meal we get from Factor, every single one. They even eat the vegetables that Factor makes without complaining. In addition to 35 different options every week, including keto, calorie smart, vegan veggie, and more, there are 55 add-ons you can choose from. We added on some breakfast options, and the kids love those too. The convenience is amazing. Two minutes, and the food is ready to go. Honestly, 
I'd eat these things for the convenience, even if they weren't so good. But the incredible thing is that it's both super fast and so tasty. I wouldn't have believed it until I tried it, but trust me, I'm not making this up. And they're super flexible. You can change your order up anytime, pause, or reschedule. Head to factormeals.com slash ACRAC50 and use code ACRAC50 to get 50% off. That's code ACRAC50 at factormeals.com slash ACCRAC50 to get 50% off. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech. And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso Lemon Scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! <sighs> smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get Hefty Ultra Strong with new Fabuloso Lemon Scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. All right, and we're back. I agree. And it's just something that requires that extra level of thought to sit to thinking about appropriate monitoring, appropriate delivery of oxygen, and then appropriate administration of medications and making sure not to just give everyone the same dose and same type of anesthetic maintenance plan, but to kind of tailor it to the patient depending on their condition as well. Yeah. Um, All right. Let's talk about perioperative brain health. What does that mean? So this priority involves perioperative delirium, cognitive dysfunction, and brain health. We just published in the June 2023 APSF newsletter an article all about perioperative brain health called Perioperative Brain Health, a Patient Safety Priority All Anesthesia Professionals Must Address. And uh, spoiler alert, we'll be talking about it on the podcast coming up here in the next couple of weeks. Um, but in this category, um, there are some, some things that anesthesia professionals can do and should be thinking about for older patients to really help kind of address this area of perioperative brain health, including perioperative neurocognitive disorders. Um, so one of the infographics in the article is um, really great, and it highlights the age-friendly health system, which uses the four M's. And the four M's are what matters, mobility, medication, and mentation. Um, And we can go through those. So remember what matters. So this is the lifestyle items like hearing aids and eyeglasses should be given to patients as soon as possible um, perioperatively to help them reorient and prevent delirium. And then having a family member visit can help identify if there is a cognitive disturbance and can help reorient after an episode of delirium. Preserving and motivating mobility is really important, and this includes working with physical medicine, rehabilitation, and nursing experts to help get patients mobile and active um, as soon as possible uh, perioperatively. Optimizing medications, and so this involves some preoperatively perhaps to check with the primary care provider to avoid certain medications that can affect the nervous system, and then also there are certain medications that 
you know, you may want to tailor your anesthetic plan to in elderly patients. Um, and some of these are promethazine and diphenhydramine, which have an increased risk for cognitive impairment and anticholinergic effects. Benzodiazepines, as, as we know, can help, can increase the risk for cognitive impairment, delirium and falls. Um, Meperidine, which has an increased risk of neurotoxicity, um, compared to other opioids and metoclopramide, which has the risk of extrapyramidal effects. And then there are certain drug to drug interactions that we want to avoid as well, such as opioids with gabapentinoids or opioids with benzodiazepines or, um, anticholinergic medications. And then, That last M stands for assess and promote mentation. And this involves considering a pre-surgery cognitive test to assess mental function to allow for a baseline comparison. And that's actually one of the recommendations that something that anesthesia professionals can do is to perform cognitive screening and an assessment of risk factors for perioperative neurocognitive disorders for all patients over 65. There are some quick and easy-to-use screening tests, such as the mini-cog or the mini-mental state examination or the Montreal Cognitive Assessment. Um, these don't require any formal training and can be done in a perioperative clinic. Great. So this stuff is really important. And obviously, we, again, this is going to be a theme that keeps coming up here, but we don't want to treat every patient the same. So an 85, 90-year-old patient is not the same as a 25, 30-year-old patient in terms of how we may treat them, what we may give them in terms of medications, and how sensitive they are to those medications. So keeping this in mind is really important. Now, I meant to ask you before, the APSF also funds some grants, right, and has funded some grants in this area? They do. Um, It's really exciting for the anesthesia researchers out there, but the APSF uses the priorities to help guide where the resources go for grants. So each of the priorities has had grants um, funded in the past couple of years, and you can head over to APSF.org again and check out um, some of the grants that have been awarded in the past few years. Great. So a good source of funding for folks who want to do some work in these areas. Um, all right, let's talk about opioid-related harm. This is obviously one uh, that was going to ring true for a lot of people, not only uh, practitioners, but lay people as well. What does the APSF include under this priority? So this includes prevention and mitigation of opioid-related harm in surgical patients. And we are just talking about this on the Anesthesia Patient Safety Podcast as well, because so back in 2011, we published an article called No Patient Shall Be Harmed by Opioid-Induced Respiratory Depression. And this revealed um, the findings from the APSF Stolting Conference at that time, back in 2011, that was dedicated to this topic. Now, the scope of the problem that's been defined over the past 10 years is that there are a substantial number of preventable deaths and other adverse events from associated and associated with opioid-induced ventilatory impairment. And opioids are some of the most common category of drugs prescribed in U.S. hospitals and the second most common category of drugs associated with serious patient adverse outcomes. And so while the exact incidence of opioid-induced ventilatory impairment in hospitals is still kind of difficult to quantify, it, it is likely very common in post-operative patients, and still at this time, risk stratification and heightened awareness of the risk factors alone does not identify all patients who develop post-operative opioid-induced respiratory depression. So this is still a big threat to anesthesia patient safety. 
Um, one of the things that the APSF has talked about is that how do we monitor appropriately for opioid-induced respiratory depression? And we do have an article about that, um, but they talk about, you know, some of the most straightforward one, pulse ox. And we talked about this, like, do we need monitoring for all postoperative patients? Well, the, the pros for using a pulse ox for all postoperative patients who are receiving opioids are that it's inexpensive, it's widely available, it's well tolerated, tolerated, and it can be incorporated into a wearable device for comfort and mobility in patients who want to get around. Um, the downsides are it's a poor monitor in patients who are receiving supplemental oxygen and it had, it requires a threshold alarm. And so you might have false positives and delayed detection in patients, depending on where you set that threshold. Um, capnography is another great monitor that we love and we can monitor end tidal CO2 and respiratory rate. Um, and this is good for detecting increased respiratory rate, decreased respiratory rate or apnea. Um, and it's much more useful with patients receiving supplemental oxygen. But on the downside, that sampling line um, is not well tolerated or might become blocked. Um, it's a qualitative monitor. It's more expensive. It's not widely available for most patients to have it routinely on the ward. Um, and once again, it's that simple threshold alarm. So it does depend on where um, where you set that threshold. And then the APSF yeah. has talked about other options available and some of the new ones, you know, radar monitoring of ventilation with a wall or ceiling mounted device, um, bioimpedance, acoustic monitoring, which might be useful in children who it's hard to get a monitor to stay on them, um, as well as just an algorithm with multiple parameters for early warning, like the MUSE or the modified early warning score. And each of these kind of has its own pros and cons, but we just haven't gotten to the point yet where we know exactly what the best monitor is for opioid-induced respiratory depression. Um, but the more people we can monitor who are receiving opioids, probably the better. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Tell me what the Prodigy score is and what the recommendation from APSF is in terms of using that. So um, this comes out from the newest uh, article from the June 2023 newsletter um, by Toby Weingarten, and he talks about a proposed new approach to postoperative opioid-induced respiratory depression. Um, in his, at the end of his article, he kind of summarizes with this new approach where he starts off with preoperatively, we really should be assessing for that risk of opioid-induced respiratory depression. Um, and the Prodigy score is one of the ways it's easy, it's convenient, and it can be incorporated into electronic health records. Um, and once you risk stratify patients into low risk, intermediate risk, or high risk, um, then that can help you from that preoperative phase. Um, he's quick to point out that any patient who is on a home positive uh, CPAP device or BiPAP device should bring that in with them and continue to use that therapy throughout the perioperative um, period. And then for patients, once they're undergoing surgery anesthesia, he highlights that it's really important to modify the anesthetic plan and medications that are administered depending on their preoperative risk that was assessed. And then really to use data from the PACU what, when they're being monitored very carefully um, using pulse oximetry and capnography to determine if they, how their risk changes at that point too. So in patients who are in the PACU after receiving opioids and having surgery who do not have any episodes of opioid-induced respiratory depression, 
and are low risk at the beginning, then they can just go on to have usual care on the postoperative ward. But in patients who are in the PACU and have an event of opioid-induced respiratory depression, either um, with apnea and then they need further monitoring, he points out that it's important to continue to monitor them after that period for a certain amount of time, two 30-minute periods, and that's kind of institution-dependent. But then to make sure that those patients then have enhanced monitoring when they leave the ward. It's likely not the only time that's going to happen. If they had a respiratory depression event in the PACU, they are at higher risk for having that um, continuing into that post-operative period as well. And then this means that patients might need either enhanced monitoring with continuous pulse oximetry or capnography on the floor, or they might even need increased level of care, such as in the ICU. Okay, great. Let's talk about the next priority, medication safety. What in this wide uh, topic does the APSF focus on? So this includes drug effects, labeling issues, shortages, technology issues, um, such as barcoding, and then processes for avoiding and detecting errors. This is a huge thing. I think sometimes when people think about the APSF, they think about lookalike drug vials because we have had a lot of submitted lookalike drug vials stories and pictures to our gallery over on our website and through Twitter. Um, and it's just one of those things that you open up your anesthetic drawer and you look in and see the medications and sometimes the vials look exactly the same. And that is a big threat to anesthesia patient safety and something that um, by sharing these stories and working with manufacturers, um, you know, we're hoping to, um, and increasing awareness for this problem, we're hoping to improve anesthesia patient safety going forward. Um, this was a topic for that has been presented at panels by the APSF at different meetings. And another interesting area that medication safety involves is in smart infusion pumps. And so just an example of how the APSF family is very multidisciplinary. We do have manufacturers who are part of our people who work for different manufacturing companies who are part of our anesthetic board and help um, develop content for the anesthesia newsletter, patient safety newsletter. And so one example was how to improve medication infusion safety from the manufacturer's perspective. And some of the ideas were to utilize smart pumps for the delivery of medications or fluids, to standardize smart pumps in the operating rooms and non-procedural locations. So that way, when you leave the operating room and go to a non-procedural location, you don't have to change your pump infusion, which could lead to errors. Um, standardizing concentrations of continuous medication uh, infusions, both in the anesthesia care areas and across the hospital. Using a central pharmacy to prepare continuous drips rather than mixing them up our own in the operating room. And then using and analyzing smart pump data to evaluate clinician compliance and smart pump effectiveness. And this is because the, some of those smart pumps out there, they can tell when uh, clinicians are overriding the alarms and alerts. And then you can go back and look at that data to say, are we using these smart pumps appropriately to keep patients safe? Or are we getting alarm fatigue because the pumps are in a, in um, not being effective when they're giving their um, safety warnings? Yeah, really important stuff. So there's obviously a, a very high profile case that a lot of people he have heard about recently that involves lookalike, soundalike drugs and errors. Tell us, remind us about that case and how it applies here. So the probably the biggest one is the one um, 
most recently when a nurse intended to give a benzodiazepine, which was midazolam or Versed, to a patient to alleviate procedural anxiety. But when she went to the automated medication dispensing cabinet, she entered the letters VE for Versed, um, and then Becuronium, which is the muscle, um, a muscle relaxant, was offered by that automated medication dispensing cabinet as the medication option to dispense. And this was the medication that was then chosen by the nurse. She bypassed several safety measures in order to withdraw and administer the vacuronium to the patient, which ultimately led to the demise of the patient. Um, This case gathered a lot of attention because the nurse was eventually tried and convicted of criminally negligent homicide. And one of the primary issues felt by many was that the nurse was unfamiliar with the medications involved and that multiple safety barriers were ignored in the process, including warnings from the automated medication dispensing cabinet and on the medication vials lap, uh, cap and label. Yeah, I mean, this is just a great example of how dangerous lookalike, soundalike errors can be and, and medication errors can be and how careful, obviously, we need to be and how we should be designing systems to help prevent these things from happening. Um, let's talk about the next priority, infectious diseases. Obviously, another huge uh topic, but where is the APSF focusing here? So for this priority, we were looking at emerging infectious diseases, including but not just limited to COVID-19. And this may include patient management, guideline development, equipment modification, and determination of operative risk. And so this actually pre-COVID, one of the Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation's um, activities was to work for and help develop the 2018 Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America consensus guidelines on intraoperative infection prevention. Um, and for example, one of the excerpts from the guidance was the authors acknowledge that the operating room is a challenging environment in which to affect ideal infection prevention and control practices, but they did note some opportunities for improvement and specifically their guidance for hand hygiene um, help to answer the question, which activities in anesthesia care should always result in hand hygiene? And the recommendation was that hand hygiene ideally should be performed according to the World Health Organization's five moments for hand hygiene. The authors recommend that it should be performed at the minimum before aseptic tests, such as inserting central venous catheters and inserting arterial catheters, drawing up medications or spiking IV bags, after removing gloves, Anytime hands are soiled or contaminated, perhaps by oropharyngeal secretions, before touching the contents of the anesthesia cart, and when entering and exiting the operating room, even after removing gloves. And then with the COVID-19 pandemic, the APSF developed the novel Coronavirus Anesthesia Resource Center, um, which is still up on our website. And we actually just recently updated the guidelines for the in conjunction with the American Society of Anesthesiologists for a joint statement on elective surgery or procedures for patients after having a COVID-19 infection. And our most recent update was just back in June 20th, 2023. So about a month and a half ago. Um, So we really are trying to make sure we're bringing the latest in perioperative patient safety. And this is one of the ways we can do that. Great, obviously a really important area. Let's talk about clinician safety. This is obviously something that has gotten a lot more focus appropriately lately than it used to. Talk about what is included under that banner of clinician safety. So this includes occupational health and wellness. 
And um, the 2021 APSF Stolting Conference was called Clinician Safety to Care is Human. And in that kind of overarching idea of clinician safety, uh, these are the summary statements that came out from that conference. Um, but it's really, there's, we still have a lot of work to, to be done, but it's great that this is another focus. Um, and some of the summary statements include, so a failure to address the crisis of clinician burnout and degraded well-being will be costly to clinicians, patients, and healthcare organizations. Clinician burnout is a significant patient safety issue because what we know is that unhappy and unhealthy clinicians lead to unhappy and unsafe patients. And then clinician burnout is a societal workforce issue because replacing one's departing perioperative professional can cost two to three times that individual's annual salary and facilitate further increased turnover of other team members for the next year. And burnout is a systemic issue and must be addressed at societal and organization levels. But individual perioperative professionals can and must be involved to help address this complex problem as well. Yeah. So clearly this is such an important topic. I couldn't agree more with what you said in terms of if we don't make sure we take care of our providers then they can't take care of patients and the, the kind of once uh, existing idea that the clinician should, the physician should always put the patient first, no matter what I think can be taken too far to the point where it means, you know, doesn't matter how burned out you are. It doesn't matter. You know, you should be working all the time. And yet that, means you are not putting the patient first because you can't care well for the patient if you are not taking care of yourself. Um, obviously, it can go too far the other way where, you know, you don't work hard or well or you're not professional about your work because you don't feel like it or, you know, I mean, we have to be professional, but mm-hmm. we need to make sure we're well and that needs to be built into the system. I think that's really crucial. Um, you mentioned there were a couple summary statements. That was one. Is there another one that, that um, you want to add? Yeah, so then they also talked about any what will a solution entail? So any comprehensive and successful solution will require the following elements. Uh, so leadership commitment to clinician well-being as an institutional core value, a real change to an organization's culture. And this means prioritizing clinician well-being, including psychological safety and a focus on increasing meaning and purpose in work. And one way to do this is by reducing those low value tasks whenever possible. Um, making sure to have reliable measurements of key metrics of individual and organizational well-being, having a system in place that is transparent and receptive to feedback. And this has to be a multidisciplinary effort as well that includes surgeons, proceduralists, nurses, anesthesiologists to help build a whole wellness community and to identify and address the most important issues at the local level because each healthcare institution will be different. So there's not a one solution that will fix all hospitals and institutions, and also making sure to incorporate diversity, equity, and inclusion in all decision-making. There's also the recognition that trainees are a particularly vulnerable population for degraded well-being, and so they have to also be proactively addressed using similar approaches. Um, And then that the allocation of tangible resources to clinician well-being, such as leadership, roles, physical space, time, It's an important signal to the organization that the leadership is serious. And one of the big takeaways from this conference was that uh, clinician well-being is not just uh, a yoga class at in 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 um, at a time that's not really great for 
for people to attend, but it's really something that has to start with the leadership and the organization's priorities and then to help everyone work better together. Yeah, couldn't agree more. All right, let's move to the final priority of airway management. Again, broad topic, really important. What are the real focuses there? Yep, so this includes airway management difficulties, skills, and equipment. And um, we actually just last year in 2022, there was the ASA uh, difficult airway algorithm was recently updated, and we covered that on in the APSF newsletter and podcast. Um, one of the interesting articles that followed was by James Gaze, who it's called Patient Positioning is 90% of the Airway Management Battle. How goes your battle? And I, I love this article. And the summary that he provided is that the 2022 ASA Difficult Airway Algorithm reviews expert opinions and new intubating devices. However, just like in the 2012 guidelines, little is mentioned of the value of patient head and neck positioning in difficult airway management. Elevation of the head, neck, and upper torso improves spontaneous and controlled ventilation and laryngoscopy views, leading to improved airway maintenance. Pre-planned patient positioning in conjunction with an intubating device can improve airway management and intubation success. And I really like this, and it's something that um, when I was teaching residents um, at UVA, I would always say, you know, focus on patient positioning first. And now doing my own cases, it's something I always think about, like, how can we have this patient in an ideal position? And I love that we have this article that goes right alongside the updated guidelines as well. Yeah, fabulous. Well, this is such great work that the APSF is doing, really important in all 10 of these important areas. And thank you, Allie, for what you're doing to bring this to light and highlight it in your podcast. I highly recommend people check out the podcast and um, the work that you're doing. I think this is uh, this is really the way for our specialty to continue doing right by our patients and, and do even better going forward. Let's move to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. What's something fun that you would recommend the audience check out? Oh, this is great. I love this. So I recently just finished an amazing series called the Scolomance series by Naomi Novik. And uh, the first book is called A Deadly Education, but it is about people who have magic. And it's kind of like Hogwarts, but um, maybe a little bit darker. Uh, and it's fabulous. And it's so great that there's three books because the minute I finished reading the first one, I was like, oh, I get to read it again or read and keep going with the story. Wow, that's great. I'm always looking for new fantasy books. So that I will definitely have to check out. Um, I'm going to recommend uh, a TV show. I'm sure I've actually shouted this out before, but it just ended, or or we, my wife and I, just finished the final episode of the of the entire series, and that is the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. If you haven't watched it, it is just such a great show. It's I think a total of oh I no I don't five six seven something like that seasons, and it just ended the final episode. And they did you know so many of these kind of long running shows can sometimes not end so well, but they did a really nice job with this final season of bringing it all together, tying up all the loose ends and leaving you with just a great feeling and, and missing the characters. So if you haven't watched it, uh, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel uh, is a fabulous show to watch. Allie, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been great. And I'm really appreciated you coming on and taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, ACRAC.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. 
if you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter, and we're at Akrak Podcast, and you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Sonia Aminat and Sophia Wu are our social media managers. Doctors April Liu, Chris Reese, and Edison Jiang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today for the ACRAC podcast. I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. 